0: It's our custom here at St. Peter's to take a book of the Bible and to walk through it really slow. Uh, And for the next 24 weeks, this is what we're going to do with the book of Hebrews. And so if you are just joining us, this is a great Sunday to begin with us because it's our first sermon in the book of Hebrews. Before we move on to why we've chosen this book, let's talk about what we know about this book. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, there's quite a few writings that are anonymous. We don't know who wrote them. Uh, In the New Testament, the only book we do not know who wrote it, is Hebrews. The author is Anonymous. Now, I think I've figured out who who wrote it. I suspect the culprit is Preston, who has been hiding time-traveling talents from us for years. Uh, But if that's not the case, whoever it was, he or she uh, was someone in association with the early church, and they were brilliant. We know from the letter that this person was friends with Timothy, that they were in the inner circle of apostles, which means that the sermon sent as a letter was written as late as 70 A.D. and maybe as early as 55 A.D. Either way, we get a picture into the early church and the theology that had permeated the early church. But from the book, we know a lot about who this letter was written to. We know that this letter was written to urban Christians, to a church in an urban center. There are more references to life in a city than any other book of the Bible. And they lived in a pluralistic city, much like ours. And they lived with a city that had different beliefs and perspectives and philosophies being promoted equally all the time. But their unique commitment to the ways of Jesus came with marginalization. Following Jesus began to bring hostility to them in the city. They had begun to suffer. Some of them maybe were even martyred. And because of their faith, the people this, uh, are, that are receiving this letter, they are struggling. They're losing reputation in society. It's affecting their ability to be employed to provide for their families. It's affecting how freely they can live and move throughout the city, and their future is feeling bleak. And so they're asking questions like, if God loves us so much, then why is life getting harder? Is there room for compromise? And if not, is following Jesus really worth it? And this is why the book of Hebrews was written to comfort, and to also challenge Christians living in an urban environment who are asking, is following Jesus really worth it? And the answer, the overarching answer of the book is faith is a journey. This is not a journey that you can sprint, nor one where the struggle isn't real, but it is a journey with an unfathomably better end. It's a journey from weariness and into rest, from alienation into the presence of God. It's a journey out of isolation into the city of God. It's a journey from the incomplete into the perfection. It's a journey from the partial to the better. But the only way you're going to make it, and this is the central message of this book, the only way you're going to make it on this journey is if you fix your eyes on Jesus. And while this book is written to Christians, it's also a great book for you if you're exploring faith and considering the question, who is Jesus? Because if you're going to fix your eyes on Jesus, it means that you're going to have to give up other options at some point. And is Jesus really better? Is he worth this sort of exclusive commitment? The author of Hebrews will help you with those questions. Now, the the, the sermon sent as a letter, uh, which I'll refer to as a book, letter, and sermon randomly. So it's the same thing, I promise. Uh, It begins with a profound vision of who Jesus is. This is what the author of Hebrews has to say. Jesus is the final word. Jesus is the supreme way in which God has spoken to the world. And that's why you can fix your eyes on him. And that's why you must fix your eyes on him. And so here's the question I want to explore this morning because it's the question asked for the entire letter. If Jesus is the final word, what has God finally said? So if you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews. It's towards the back of the Bible. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, if you were handed one on the way in, you can take that Bible home with you. It's a gift from us to you. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible at all, everything's on the screen. The author of Hebrews writes... Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Think about that. The underlying premise of what he has just said is that God speaks. God speaks. Without this core belief, our faith is nonsense. I mean, without this belief, the rest of what the author of Hebrews has to say isn't worth our time. Of course, this might be why we write off faith altogether. God doesn't speak. It's just the fanatics or perhaps the misguided but well-meaning people who think they hear from the divine. But all in all, this is nonsense. God doesn't speak. But what we see is the author of Hebrews carries a deeply different conviction. He starts with this basic assumption. God not only speaks, but God has spoken at many times and in many ways to our fathers by the prophets. And in doing so, in saying God speaks, The author of Hebrews is showing us his Jewish roots. After all, this is where the Hebrew scriptures begin. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And this refrain repeats again and again. God said, and there was. God said, and there was. It's the first thing the Bible wants you to know about God. God speaks. And when God speaks, everything, all of creation came to be. But God didn't stop there. God has spoken at many times and in many ways. He spoke through the prophets of Israel. And they never, never claimed to be speaking on their own accord unless they were a false prophet. That's why they're always saying, thus saith the Lord. They are saying, this is what God said. But you say, of course, this author believes that God speaks. You know, it comes down to his background and his experience in life. He's an Orthodox Jew. He's just the product of his upbringing and environment. Of course he thinks God speaks. Fair enough. But did you know in a study led by Emily Pronin of Princeton, I hear that school's all right, it's no Cambridge, but (laughs) it was discovered that even when people are educated about self bias, you know, how we are biased toward ourselves over others, Even when we become aware of how everyone does this, participants in their research only applied this insight to everyone but themselves. They say, yes, I know that everyone is biased, but I am not. For example, if someone were to say that the author's belief that God speaks is just a product of his upbringing and environment, but they also claimed that their own conviction that God does not speak is not the product of their upbringing and environment, This would be exactly what the researchers are talking about. We like to believe we're exempt from the norm, that we have the vantage point. We see things as they really are. We're not biased. That's other people's issue. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that's how others operate, not me. I would just invite you to think about your response a little bit longer. (laughs) Nobody is exempt on this. All of us. Whether you're spiritual and religious or you have no religious thought whatsoever, we have to ask ourselves are my beliefs just the product of my background and environment? Does my own self bias stop me from examining my belief or my unbelief? You see, if we don't have the vantage point to assess all truth unbiasedly, how could we say God speaks? How could we say God doesn't speak? Only if God speaks for himself. Only if God speaks for himself. We need to hear God speak for himself, and we need to hear it for ourselves. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, in these last days, God has spoken to us. God has spoken to us. You could even say God has spoken for us. We can hear what God has to say, all of us, and not just some of us, because God wants to have a relationship with us. He's not speaking to dead space just for the sake of speaking, but for the sake of being known, for the sake of being in relationship. You see, God speaks not just theoretically, but experientially. The author of Hebrews asserts this. Yes, it's been shaped in him by his upbringing, but it's also something he's experienced for himself through his faith in Christ. And this conviction has been anchored in his mind and heart because of how God has spoken. When he says, at many times God has spoken, the Greek is literally in pieces. Previously, God spoke in pieces through the prophets of Israel. But now, now their voices have come together in harmony and how God has finally spoken through his son. So let's look at the heart of this letter, verses 2 through 4. They begin with the simple words, in these last days. In other words, this is it. Between now and the end of time, God has spoken. This is the definitive and supreme revelation of God to the world. It's not to say God will never speak to people again, but on matters of salvation, this is it. This is God's final word. In these last days, the author writes, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than ours. Next week, we'll deal with the angel stuff. When God spoke to us by his son, a voice didn't merely boom out of heaven. That's happened from time to time in scriptures, if you're familiar with them. And whenever it does, it really freaks people out. It's not the most effective way for God to speak to us. You know, they fall on their faces in fear or they refuse to let it register as a voice. They just hear a thunder. But this time, God has spoken through his son. Heaven has kissed earth. God sent his son into the world Jesus, the eternal Son of God, incarnated. He wore flesh and blood. He walked the earth. He made footprints in the dirt. He felt oxygen in his lungs. And as he became human among us on earth, Jesus remained the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. Which is why the author of Hebrews can say profound things like, through him, he created the entire world. He upholds the universe by his power. You can't say these things about a person. I put it on my resume. It did not go well for me. You can only say these things if it's about God himself. One of the most skeptical New Testament scholars around is Bart Ehrman. He doesn't believe in Jesus, but he says, whatever else you may think about Jesus, he certainly did exist. See, the heart of the matter is not whether Jesus of Nazareth walked on the face of this earth. Even the most critical scholars believe that. The issue is if he was, in fact, the radiance of the glory of God. These are possibly the most exalting words said about Jesus in all of the New Testament. He is the radiance of the glory of God. We can't even look at the glory of the sun without going blind. If we stare at the sun, it will destroy our eyes. People were freaking out about the eclipse. Don't look at the sun. Don't look at the sun. And people still thought, I'll look at the sun. And they went blind. (laughs) If we can't handle the direct light of the glory of the sun, how can we fathom gazing upon the glory of God? God's glory is the revelation of himself. It's God making himself known. And in Scripture, God's glory is this powerful and terrifying reality. It's often pictured of as an unfathomable and impenetrable light or smoke. When God's glory descended on Mount Sinai, which is what I think the author has in mind. This is a defining moment for the people of Israel. This is when they really become a people, when they receive the law of God, when God reveals himself to them, when his glory descends upon the mountain, what does he say? Don't even touch the mountain. Don't even let the animals touch the mountain or you're going to die. When God's glory descended upon the tabernacle for Israel in the wilderness, the place where they were going to make sacrifices so they could be in God's presence, when the glory fell upon that place, they fell on their faces and screamed in fear. His glory was too powerful. It had to be mediated. If they tried to enter into his glory, it would consume them because of their sinful condition. And yet God speaks to be in relationship with us. And God speaks through his son so that we can gaze upon the radiance of God's glory without going blind, without his glory consuming us. God's given someone we can behold, someone we can gaze upon, someone we can fix our eyes upon, someone we can relate to so that in engaging him, we're actually engaging God himself. We be sure that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature? That is a big claim. When I was in elementary school, uh, I think I was probably like 17 at the time, I got held back a bunch, I found myself in the principal's office more than once. Uh, I was there quite frequently, if I'm honest. And on one occasion, I had failed to finish an important assignment, and I received a failing mark. And I didn't care. But as a result, I was given a very formal looking letter and told to take it to my parents and have my parents sign it and bring it back with me uh, to school the next day. And I thought immediately, ah, you suckers. I slowly walked home with my brilliant idea. When I got home, I waited until my mom was uh, cooking dinner. And while she was busy, I took her credit card out of her wallet, and I took some tracing paper, and I traced her signature. And then I forged her signature on the letter and returned it and got away with it, thus beginning my career as a graphic designer. In our world of forgeries, they can be very close to the real thing, but there's usually a tell. You know my shoes are a knockoff. My mom would have known that signature was not hers. Fortunately, the teachers didn't. The author of Hebrews has the audacity to say, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. The word for imprint in the Greek means no variance, no imperfection no deviance whatsoever, an exact imprint of God. He's not just information about God. He's who God is. He's God's very character. He's saying, if you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. If Jesus was not God, there would have been some sort of tell, some sort of flaw or imperfection that would undermine his claim. But even his most vehement critics couldn't find a flaw in his life. They had to try to fabricate charges to get rid of Jesus and they couldn't even get their lies straight. But then they finally found a charge that stuck. And what was the charge? Blasphemy. Because Jesus, being a man, had claimed to be God. And when they made this accusation against him, you're guilty of blasphemy, he didn't deny it. Even at the expense of his life. Even Jesus' own family came to believe he's God. And my friends, that is a tough sell. Give it a shot this week and let me know how it goes for you. If Jesus was just a knockoff, a holy man, a good replica of God, but not God himself, if he's just pulling off an elaborate con, then he deceived his closest friends and family and died for a claim that was completely untrue with absolutely no benefit for himself. He was poor and without a home. He didn't get rich off of some pyramid scheme. And he ultimately lost his life. Jesus being a replica, but not the real thing, doesn't make the most sense of his life and what we know he said. Unlike the prophets, who so frequently say, you know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus never said that. Not once. He always says, truly, truly, I say to you, he speaks as God speaks. Over again in in the Gospels, he says things like, I did not speak on my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. Or, truly, truly, I tell you, there it is, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son does. And even my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish The work. What is Jesus saying? If you hear me speaking, you're hearing God speaking. What you see me doing is God taking action. The author of Hebrews is saying to us, if you look at Jesus, you see God himself. The author of Hebrews and even Jesus, they don't leave us an in-between option. If we take them on their own terms, Jesus is either God or he's not. He's either the exact imprint of God's character, or he's not. There's no in-between. The the scholar N.T. Wright puts this tension in a helpful way. He writes, How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life, capital L, itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. We're not given the option of Jesus being sort of God, or kind of God, or maybe God. To live in this space, N.T. Wright says, is to live in a shallow world because it's intellectually dishonest. Jesus is either the God of the universe or he's not. And you have to make a decision at some point. And if you uh, decide not to make a decision, that is a decision. But stepping back for a minute, why does the author of Hebrews kick off his sermon letter this way? Why start with this claim? One scholar even calls these uh, four verses a Christological nosebleed. Now, this is a lot to take in. Out of all the places he could start, why start here? Remember, this author is writing to Christians who are being marginalized, who are facing very real costs for following Jesus. And the question on their mind is, is it still worth it? Because life is getting harder. Do you relate to this at all in Vancouver? You're waiting for a relationship and you keep saying no to potential relationships because you know faith needs to be at the center of it. At a certain point, you start asking, is this worth it? You know that the Christian ethics around sex are quite conservative and restrictive and you start to wonder getting on in life, is it still worth it? You know that following Jesus changes the way you relate to conflict, the way that you have to forgive, the way that you show mercy, who you spend your time with, and you start to wonder, is this worth it? Because I can't live for myself the way I want. And if you're trying to decide if Jesus is still worth following or if it's worth following him at all for the first time, the author of Hebrews understands we need to start here We need to start with the reality that Jesus is God, because if Jesus is God, it is worth following him no matter the cost. And here's why. Look at verse three again. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The letter is going to treat this in great detail later on. For now, we only need to understand that in ancient Judaism, being purified from sin, was central to their life with God. Sin had to be dealt with in order for them to be in God's presence. But even their own prophets had told them that the sacrifices they were offering for sin was only a temporary measure, that someday God would do away with these things because something better would come in the last days. Now, you might not think in the categories of sin. I get that. But you have a sense a sense of sin in your life even if you don't use that word. You get imperfection, mistakes, brokenness, falling short of ideals and goals, hurting others and sometimes even hurting yourself. When you fail to keep your word, when you binge or overindulge, when you think of yourself before others on and on and, on and I could go. You might call these imperfections or brokenness or shortcomings, scripture calls all of this sin. And we know firsthand that our brokenness and our shortcomings, what scripture calls our sin, can cause relational hurt and pain. It can even end friendships and families. We've seen this firsthand. And this reality is only amplified in our relationship with God because God is sinless and we, my friends, are full of it. But now, now God has spoken. The Son of God, through whom everything was made, who sustains the universe by the power of his word, came into the world for one purpose and one purpose alone, to purify us from our sins. This is why the eternal Son of God incarnated. And this is why some people really struggled when they encountered Jesus on earth. He would declare sins forgiven. His critics said, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus came into the world to purify us, to remove everything that stands in the way between us and God and all of creation being at peace. And upon the cross, he gave his life to forgive our sins, to bring about a new creation, a new order. But before that, what did he say? It's finished. This is the final word it's finished. What needs to be done in order for us to be pure and to have peace and to bring about a new creation, it's finished. God came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came to make us pure in his sight, to make us whole. Now remember, the main point of Hebrews is to keep our eyes fixed on this Jesus, the Son of God. This is how we enter into this new reality where we're made pure and whole. By putting our faith in him, our relationship with God is restored. It's only because of Jesus that we can fix our eyes upon this radiance of God's glory and not fear that it'll destroy us or crush us because of our sin. Do you see? This same Jesus, the Son of God, who sustains the whole universe by his word? He uses this power to come into the world, to purify your sins, to open up a way into his presence. You better believe that if you fix your eyes on him, you'll see him using that very same power to sustain you until you arrive on eternity's shore. Because now, now Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, now he's exalted in a place of total power and authority over everything that is. And this is the place of highest honor, the place of God. And this would have meant everything to Christians in the ancient world because they lived in a world of shame and honor. In their city, they were facing shame. They were marginalized. They were pushed out and isolated. They were becoming outcasts. They were losing social status and honor. People didn't want to relate to them anymore. And the author reminds them that Jesus holds the seat of highest honor and that he used his position and prestige and power to cleanse them and make them new and forgive their sins and offer love in exchange for their brokenness. They're being reminded, no matter what shame the world may try to heap on you for your peculiarity and trying to follow me, no matter what shame they can cast upon you, Jesus has bestowed upon you the greatest Honor the greatest worth because he's embraced you and he came into the world for you. And when you get that, you'll keep following him no matter the cost, no matter what you face, no matter how hard it be, no no matter how confusing it may be at times. What the incarnation tells us is that God is for us, not against us. And he has the power to carry us through. He doesn't guarantee smooth sailing, but he does guarantee arrival into his presence and love. If we fix our eyes on Jesus, we're not fixing them on our circumstances alone. We're not fixing them on ourselves. We're not fixing them on what we have to do. We're fixing our eyes. We're keeping our soul focus on what he has done for us. And this changes us. I was out for lunch this week, and the waitress uh, had an interesting and subtle tattoo uh, right there. And because I have tattoos, I feel like I can be that annoying person who says, what does your tattoo mean? Uh, not that I'm annoyed if you ask me that. Just in case you're wondering, you can ask me, and I'll tell you a whole bunch of terrible stories. But um, I'm getting side-railed. I asked her, what does your tattoo mean? Because she had the word smile tattooed here. And I didn't take a photo of her arm. That would be creepy. That's just from the internet. And... <laughs> When she entered into her teens, she stopped talking to her dad altogether. Not just for like a couple days or a couple weeks, but for months. She did not speak a single word to her dad. She didn't tell me why, but the relationship was falling apart. Nothing her dad said could get through to her. But she said on one day, unannounced, as a complete surprise, he arrived at her school in the middle of day, carrying a single rose for her with a card with one word written in it. Smile. Somehow her dad had found the one thing that it took to break through to her. And she said that was the defining and transformative moment in their relationship. That ever since, he'll text smile. I hope you're smiling. And she say, I am. And she kept that card for years. And it began to fade because of the sun. Because, uh, you know, if you stare at it, it's not good. It's the same for paper. And <laughs> she got it tattooed on her. That's how profound the change was for her. Smile. I love hearing her story because of what her dad did for her. When she saw his love for her, she kept her eyes fixed on him. She's willing to have that tattooed on her wrist to keep her eyes fixed on her father's love for her. And when she talks about it, she smiles. I saw it firsthand. You see, this is a small and beautifully powerful picture of what God does for us We may have pushed him out, but here we find him pursuing us, pursuing our presence. And when you understand what God has spoken to you through his son, it changes you. When you fix your eyes on him, when you see what he's done for you, it'll change your heart. It'll melt your heart. There's no room for a half-hearted gaze, not in this city, not in any city. If he's truly the son of God... He'll capture your entire attention because God himself came into the world to be with you. And if you don't see that, if it hasn't captured your entire attention, you're invited to gaze a little longer still. And if you've never fixed your eyes on Jesus, I hope to have given you just a glimpse this morning and I invite you to continue journeying with us in learning more about him in the weeks to come. the author of Hebrews knows, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, not once, but again and again and again. And so I hope that you can come and discover who he is with us.